Welcome to the Joan Shorenstein Center on the Press, Politics, and Public Policy at the Harvard Kennedy School. For more on events, news, and research, visit us at shorensteincenter.org. Welcome. I'm uh, Alex Jones. I'm the director of the Shorenstein Center on the Press, Politics, and Public Policy, and uh, it's my great pleasure to welcome one of our old and dear friends uh, to the Shorenstein Center again. Ethan Zuckerman has been one of the pioneers in the thinking about digital uh, technology for quite a long time. He's one of the founders of Global Voices with a former Shorenstein fellow, Rebecca McKinnon. Um, He is now um, at MIT. Uh, He directs the Center for Civic Media and uh, teaches at the Media Lab. He's here today to talk about his new book published just this summer, Rewired, Digital Cosmopolitans in the Age of Connection. I think that it would be fair to say that um, Ethan is is an opti- I say a cautious optimist about the web, but he's not a triumphalist. He's never been one who sort of was blind to the to the difficulties and the challenges and even the downsides of of the of the, of the web. His book is one that really tries to think about the realities of what the digital technology that we have all come now to accept. Uh, has changed in ways that we did not expect, has changed us in ways perhaps we did not expect, and has been in some ways counterintuitive in the impact that it's had. Um, His book is really about thinking about the realities of the web and where it's going from here, Uh, and he's really one of the great thinkers in this area. Ethan, it's my great pleasure to welcome you to the Shorenstein Center. Thank you so much, Alex, and very kind intro, and it's always just a, a huge pleasure to be here. I have to say that um, in a very real way, this book and sort of the work that led up to it has a, a, a lot owed to Shorenstein uh, because my, my co-founder of Global Voices, Rebecca McKinnon, uh, found herself back at Harvard first as a Shorenstein fellow and then over at the Berkman Center where I was working. And so that connection has had a lot to do with helping me sort of explore these issues. Um, and Alex, thanks for, for positioning me maybe as, as an optimist but not an enthusiast because in many ways... The book that I've just written is a bit of a love letter to the internet, but it's the love letter of a, a of a sort of old and experienced lover who who's had a bad breakup and has sort of put <laughs> things back together again. Um, and 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 what I mean by this is I I'd like to think that this is sort of my my book about um, coming to grips with the real shortcomings where the internet um, doesn't do what what I had sort of hoped it would do. Um, and, and I come to this really through the process of, of not being a journalist or a journalism scholar, um, but really sort of a geek and a techie who, whose work has sort of led me in, in some very interesting directions. Um, my background, to the extent that I'm qualified to actually do anything, it's, it's to sort of write software for the web. And, and I was lucky enough to be one of the founders of one of these really early web 1.0 startups on the top floor of a mill building in Williamstown, Massachusetts with a whole bunch of other guys in shorts and long hair, um, building a company that that ended up being pretty successful, Uh, one of the first social media companies, a company called Tripod. Um, And I get very interested in this question 
of whether what we'd been lucky enough to do out there in Western Massachusetts would sort of scale to some other parts of the world. And so I did the only logical thing you could do um, as a 27-year-old with too much money and too much time and no real sense of, of where to go, I moved to Ghana, West Africa, and tried <laughs> to get a sense for where the technology economy was going to go in Ghana. And, and this is not quite as off the wall as it might sound. Um, so Ghana in 2000, when I moved there, uh, was really starting to establish itself as a new potential digital hub for sub-Saharan Africa. Um, there was a, a contract that uh, a company in Ghana had won that was getting a lot of attention. If you got a parking ticket in New York City, that parking ticket was photographed, sent over the internet to Ghana, and it was entered into the database by poor Ghanaians who had to sort of struggle with the handwriting of the American traffic cops and were trying to sort of develop this mental map of New York City as they were sort of writing up these parking tickets. And, and my theory on this was there was a lot more we could do in this. You have a nation filled with reasonably well-educated English speakers. We could do all sorts of outsourcing to Ghana and really raise the level of technical development there. And all we needed to do were find geeks from the developed world who would want to go and hang out in the developing world for four to six months at a time I called it Geek Corps. It was my pun on the Peace Corps. Uh, and it actually did some pretty nice work over the course of a couple of years. But what it mostly meant was that I found myself going from sort of being a technology evangelist in the U.S. to being an evangelist really for West Africa, to try to get people in the rest of the world to open themselves up to this notion that West Africa wasn't just a basket case filled with coups, it was a basket case filled with coups that had some really optimistic bright spots that, that were doing quite well indeed, thank you very much. And Ghana in 2000 was absolutely one of these bright spots. You may remember going back in history, uh, the U.S. had an election in 2000, didn't go so well. Um, Ghana had an election at more or less exactly the same time. In Ghana's election, the opposition leader won, uh, took power in a universally acclaimed free and fair election, no violence, no instances of voting fraud. It went so well in Ghana that my dear friend at that time, who was uh, Ghana's ambassador to the U.S., sent me a copy of the facts that he sent to Bill Clinton offering Ghanaian election monitors to come into Florida <laughs> and oversee what was obviously a troubled and fraudulent election. And he wrote it, you know, mostly tongue-in-cheek, but with a certain amount of seriousness. So I, like all proud crypto-Ghanaians, uh, was celebrating the election of John Quofor, uh, who took power on the 30th of December uh, in the year 2000. And I was home for the holidays, so I was reading the New York Times as you do, and I pulled out the New York Times and I was waiting for the front page story about the most optimistic political news in Africa in about a decade and, and came across this front page instead. Uh, and you'll notice if you read closely, there's not a lot of Ghana on that front page. It's actually mostly trying to figure out uh, what in fact was going to happen in the wake of Bush v. Gore. And I started flipping through the paper and eventually, uh, fairly deep within the paper, around about uh, page 11, uh, came on this 237-word story. And, and at that point, decided that I was focusing on the wrong thing. The idea that technology, and the internet in particular, and the idea of building businesses in Africa was suddenly going to lead to global political inclusion, uh, I sort of, in that flash of the moment, sort of said, I think maybe I'm looking at this slightly too narrowly. 
Um, and so, as good programmers do, I started trying to look at a broader program through the lens of, of technology. I started asking this question of, how do you end up on the front page of the New York Times? And there's a lot of people who've gone and answered this question. Some answer it very cynically. There's the old notion of one blonde girl is worth 10 people in South America, is worth 100 people in a bus plunge, is worth 1,000 Africans. And it was really interesting to sort of see, could you actually go and try to quantify this? And so for years, I've been building maps that look a little bit like this. This is the map of the New York Times for September. We've fed every story on the New York Times into a geographic disambiguation engine. We make a pretty intelligent guess about what country's being mentioned. And then we end up mapping it. And we start getting very distinctive portraits of the world. And I'll tell you, I have to date these maps very carefully. And the reason I have to date these maps very carefully is except in extraordinary circumstances, they are identical year after year after year, going back to about 2002 when I made my first one of these. Um, the Times, for all its many, 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 many strengths, um, has some blind spots. Um, most of Sub-Saharan Africa is a pretty bad blind spot for the Times. Most of Central Asia is a pretty bad blind spot for the Times. And lest you think I am beating up in the New York Times, which I adore, a marvelous paper run by wonderful people, you can do these for any media source, and you will get your own custom set of blind spots. The BBC has terrible blind spots towards Latin America. And if you try to figure out what the BBC pays attention to, you'll discover that basically, if the UK colonized it at one point, they still care about it. <laughs> Doesn't matter if it's been generations, they're still keeping a very, very close eye on it just in case someone rolls it back and paints the map pink again. But everybody's got their patterns and everybody's got their blind spots. And so this is work that's sort of been informing how I've been sort of thinking about the internet. We have this possibility of getting information really from anywhere. We're at a moment where reporting from Central Africa, still incredibly challenging, but orders of magnitude easier than it would have been a generation or two ago. You can think back to what it was like reporting during the Vietnam War, where you had to shoot film and actually physically ship it back and develop it and try to broadcast it. And we're now at the point where you can put me down with a satellite phone and a camera almost anywhere, and I can be live to you from the Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo, except for the fact that I, generally speaking, am not. So... This is my sort of gripe with journalism, which is fine in a room like this, but it's, it's not actually all that interesting a gripe. A lot of people have sort of made it over time. My big gripe right now is about how we talk about the Internet. And this is a map that's got an, an enormous amount of play. This was a map put together by an intern named Paul Butler at Facebook in 2010. And being an intern at Facebook is pretty cool. It's not just that they pay you and that the office is really nice but they give you access to Facebook's data, which you absolutely cannot get as an outside researcher. They are terrible about cooperating with outside researchers. But if you're in the house, you can do sort of remarkable stuff with it. And Butler decided to do something really simple. He took a subset of the data, he took a random sample of about a thousandth of Facebook's data, and he made a map of personal connections on Facebook. So every line on this map represents one person connected to another person. And so you'll see there's certain parts of the world with heavy Facebook use. And you get into Brazil, or you get into Western Europe, you get into India, you get into Malaysia, which just lights up white. There's so many people using it, it just shows all of it. But clearly, to me at least, the rhetorical message of this map is that Facebook is bringing us all together. We are, on one level or another, 
all connected to each other through one or two hops on Facebook. And in fact, this is how Facebook uses this image. When you see Zuckerberg talking about Facebook's sort of importance in a global sense, he will position himself in front of a monitor showing this so he can make the point to you that Facebook, in fact, is truly global. But we should look at this image because this, like all images, has a certain amount of construction to it. So before we're willing to grant Zuckerberg the world, we should note a couple of things. First of all, you may have noticed that China is missing from this map entirely. just doesn't show up, and that's pretty simple. China blocks Facebook. We simply don't have the connection to China through that particular network. Maybe less obvious is the fact that Russia is not on that map. And it's not that Russia blocks Facebook. It's that Facebook isn't real popular in Russia. People use Vcontact, people use LiveJournal, people use a lot of other networks there. You'll notice that most of Sub-Saharan Africa is missing. Again, mostly about internet penetration, mostly about where it goes. But the real lie associated with this map is it's really difficult to discern between those connections on the continents and the connections between them. Yes, a lot of people use Facebook for international connections, but they are a tiny, tiny, tiny minority of what most people use <coughs> Facebook for. Something like 95% of connections in Facebook are connections that were made face-to-face. And in fact, Facebook is deeply suspicious of virtual-only connections. When you meet someone on Facebook, Facebook will say, do you know this person in real life? And if you say no, they make a little tick essentially saying, I wonder if this is fraud. I wonder if someone is essentially trying to build friendships so they can engage in financial fraud later. We trust the face-to-face -face ones a little bit more. And when I did manage to get some of Facebook's data, what I was able to find out is that on average, Facebook users have about 130 friendships. About 13% of those friendships cross international borders. Now that's a massive number. That's really huge. If you were to sort of figure out your numbers, you would probably have a number somewhat smaller than that in terms of general percentage. But they're, they're, uh, they're distributed in a very, very interesting way. Facebook considers you to be from the country that you are living in. So if you are a Pakistani living and working in the United Arab Emirates, keeping in touch with your 130 Pakistani friends back in Pakistan or working in other countries, all of your friends register as international. So you come up as 100% in all of that. And when we looked at the data set, what we basically found is that Facebook sort of replicates these offline dynamics. You are still friends with the same people that you were in a pre-digital age, and your friendship tends to be highly local. So we were sort of hoping that something like a Facebook, something that basically makes it possible for you to be one or two hops from anywhere in the globe, would potentially change who you were connected to, where you were getting information from. And near as we can tell, it's actually not doing it very much. The vast majority of us are connected to a very, very small number of people across national borders. There's a tiny number of us who are responsible for the vast majority of that sort of international connection. So who cares, right? I mean, why does this matter? It's fine. You know, you use Facebook to stay in touch with high school friends. Why is this a big deal? It's a big deal because we're getting less news about the world. If you look at what's happening to use news in the United States, particularly television broadcast news, we are getting much, much less international news than we were a couple of decades ago. It's gone from about a third of the news hole down to about an eighth of the news hole. It varies day to day. It varies depending on the media cycle. But these are numbers coming out of the Vanderbilt archive, looking at the big three news networks, and sort of looking at total coverage 
of international news within U.S. broadcast media. You can do the same thing with newspapers. You get very, very similar results with almost everything but the New York Times. Uh, the Times has tried very, very hard to keep a high level of international coverage, although it's got some holes in it. They've gone very, very well as far as their overall percentage, but looking at the Chicago Tribune, looking at the LA Times, looking at a couple of other top-tier papers, we've seen quite a serious drop. The best research done on this was done by Media Standards Trust in the UK. They saw a 45% drop in four major UK newspapers from the 1970s to the present, and that's an absolute number of stories. So something like The Guardian, which has gone from this to this, has dropped 45% while it has expanded its newspaper. So your odds of encountering that international story go sort of lower and lower. Now that's fine, right? Because who really needs broadcast media? This is the digital environment. We've obviated all of that. We simply go online from now. Well, as we saw before, the New York Times has some blind spots, but you know, fortunately there's new competitors in that space trying to do um, things better, like the Huffington Post. Um, so this is HuffPo post its internationalization. This is after starting a Paris newsroom. This is after making their giant global investment. Um, they have a really strong U.S. domestic bias. Uh, and it's very much the same sorts of patterns, where the same dark spots are as the New York Times, but it's significantly more severe in terms of what gets covered and what doesn't get covered. What we are starting to find is that when we look at data about what's happening online, there are some places where we get an enormous amount of information through digital media. White spots on this map are spots that show up on Twitter. Uh, this is Kalev Lutaru's research. It's an amazing paper on uh, what's going on on Twitter. The spots that show up on red show up on Google News and not at all on social media. So the way that I like to read this map is basically if you see it in white, this is not our problem. We are getting lots and lots of information. We could get a hybrid of traditional media and citizen media from those places. The really tricky spots for us are the red spots and the black spots. Red spots means right now we continue to be incredibly dependent on media as we know it to find out what's going on in those parts of the world. And if it shows up as a black spot, we're probably not getting much information at all. So I'm trying to make the argument that this image put forward by Facebook, that it's a highly connected world, that there's a huge amount of information flow, is hiding a much deeper and, and maybe more challenging reality. And, and the reality is this. There is a very strong social tendency towards homophily, towards birds of a feather to flock together. And much of what we built on the internet thus far seems to emphasize this tendency rather than sort of challenging this tendency. An enormous amount of what we've built makes it possible for us to essentially say, I want to find out about people who I know that matter to me. If I'm an American, I want to know about other Americans. If I'm Indian, I want to know about other Indians. And I really want to know about people I already know. I want to know about the people who come from my city. I want to know about my family and friends. And I want to know about that possibly at the expense of a wider view of the world. And as we thought about how our patterns of encountering with media have shifted, we've gone from this sort of New York Times model of curation where you have a smart editor essentially saying, look, I know at the end of the day you really want to find out what happened at the end of the Red Sox game, but before you get there, I really feel like there are four or five things about the world that you need to know, and whether you think you need to know them or not, I'm going to give them to you. 
we overthrew that paradigm as we started getting into the world of search and we started getting into personalized news. And this was the whole daily me uh, coming out of Negroponte and the Media Lab, the personalized newspaper. I only need to find out about the Red Sox and about Ghana and the three other stories that I care about because basically I'm not going to have a curator anymore. I'm going to simply search for what I want. And the problem with searching for what you want is that you get exactly what you want. You don't necessarily get what you might need to know about the world. We've now moved a step further, and we're now getting into the world of social, where someone like Facebook essentially shows up and says, look, we want to be your portal to the world's information. And the way we're going to be helpful to you is we're not just going to tell you what you want to know. We're going to tell you what you want to know that your friends already know. We're going to assume that your best path to navigating your way through the world is through the eyes of your friends. So if you want to search for a restaurant in New York City, if you're down there giving a talk, we are by default going to construct the search to sort of say, what do your friends like in New York City? Now this can be really helpful if you have the right set of friends. But for most of us, we have friends who look a whole lot like we do. And you're going to get a set of recommendations. You're going to get a view of the world that puts you in a box. It puts you in a box of nationality, of language, of culture, of ethnicity, of religion. It's going to filter you based on who is in your social network. And Facebook is doing this not because they're evil. Facebook is doing this because it's a really good way to make money. If you can hand people information that is comfortable and consonant with what they believe and what they want to know, people will load more web pages. And this is why we are going down this path. This is not that companies are suddenly trying to shrink our universes. They are simply trying to sell us ads. And one of the best ways to sell us ads is to give us exactly what we want, to give us what our friends have told us is important, and sort of let go of any of that sort of civic responsibility of essentially saying, I know you don't want to know this, but you need to know this. So here's why this ends up being a problem. Most of the problems that we are dealing with that are deep and intractable are actually global in scale. Whether it's a question of pollution and climate change, whether it's a lot of questions we have about epidemic disease, whether it's the changing shape of energy usage, whether it's global currency markets, it's very, very hard to think of a big problem that wouldn't require some aspect of multinational perspective on all of that. And when we are getting information mostly from that mononational, monocultural point of view, it gets harder and harder and harder to figure out sort of how we listen to that information. Cass Sunstein has a really nice body of work looking at the left and right in America and essentially saying if you let people sort themselves into left-leaning or right-leaning echo chambers, they end up becoming more extreme in one fashion or another. He's written a couple of good books on this. My friend Eli Pariser wrote a pretty good book called The Filter Bubble, making the case that algorithms are now sort of aggravating all of this. Where the two of them don't go far enough is that that filter bubble is three-dimensional. It's not just a matter of the fact that Republicans don't talk to Democrats, and we've all seen what that leads to. It's that Americans don't talk to Chinese. We don't read Chinese media. We don't see Chinese perspectives. We don't have a very good sense for what's going on in that public sphere because our ability to do it through the mainstream media is getting compromised by shrinking and faltering newsrooms, and we're simply not getting it through digital media because those aren't the networks that we've ended up building. Um, There's an affirmative reason to care about this as well. 
There is an amazing social science paper. It's one of the first ones that I make my students read called Structural Holes and Good Ideas. And what happens in this paper is this guy, Ron Burt, gets hired by Raytheon. He's a management professor. He gets hired by Raytheon in the late 1980s, early 1990s. It's got to be the mid-90s because Raytheon has just made a fortune off of the Patriot missile and has gone on sort of a buying binge and is trying to figure out how to integrate a bunch of different companies. They're doing really bad with it. They figure we'll get a top-notch management professor to help us figure out what we could do to bring these companies together. Bert comes in and he does this sort of experiment that you sort of spend your life as a sociologist hoping to do. He interviews everybody in the purchasing department of this 100,000-person firm. And he asks them all to put up their ideas about how to make the company better. He takes these ideas, he anonymizes them, and he hands them to senior management of the company and says, tell me who had a good idea. And so by the end of it, he figures out who are the really smart people in Raytheon? Who are the people having really interesting creative ideas that could pull the company forward? And he puts it on a social graph, and he finds something pretty unambiguous. People who are isolated in their own office, who talk to the same group of people day after day after day, have terrible ideas. Do not listen to them. Their ideas for managing the company are dreadful. They're really narrow. They have no vision of the whole company. People who sit at what he calls structural holes in the company, people who are bridges between one part of the company and another, the person in the Boston office who is in touch with the Manila office and who's going back and forth and on the phone all the time, those people, he very poetically puts it, are at high risk of having creative ideas. <laughs> and his theory behind this is pretty simple. He basically says creativity isn't about genius. It's an import-export process. It's about taking an idea that seems really common in one culture and bring it into another culture where it's completely revolutionary. And so I, I find myself looking at Picasso and the way in which he ended up borrowing from West African masks, taking ideas that are completely colloquial every day within that culture, but brought into painting shortly after, by the way, Picasso became an African mask collector, start becoming the foundations for what we start seeing as Cubism. You know, yes, Picasso is a genius, but he's also a really good cultural thief. He found something that worked really, really well in one setting and brought it into another setting where it turned out to be a way to bring it in. So this notion of creativity as an import-export process is ultimately why I really care about this. I care about this because I think that not only do we have a better chance of taking on really big problems, we have a much better chance of being interesting and creative thinkers if we can find a way to rebuild digital media so that we're getting some high level of cognitive diversity, a level of cognitive diversity that I feel like is getting squeezed out at this moment in time. The reason I wrote this book is that I don't think that social changes associated with technology are inevitable. We're having a conversation right now that sort of suggests that privacy is dead and gone, and we think it not just because of the NSA revelations, which may well mean that privacy is dead and gone, but because of technologies like Google Glass, where suddenly we're told, let's everyone get used to the notion that we're going to be constantly under surveillance. There's nothing that says that that's what has to come about from this technology. We reject technologies all the time. We decide that they're too dangerous. We decide that they're corrosive. We decide we're going to put real restrictions on how we use them. There's nothing that says that we have to give up privacy. 
There's nothing that says that we have to accept an internet that tries to focus us on building relationships with people we already know and already spend time with. We could make the decision to build something very different. The trick is it's surprisingly hard to do. I've spent the last decade or so trying to build out this website with my colleague Rebecca McKinnon and now a team of about 150,000 people uh, not 150,000, 100, uh, 1,500 people. I wish it was 150,000. <laughs> 1,500 people reaching about three-quarters of a million people a month. And what Global Voices does is it tries to open up what's going on in social media to a global audience. So we take a conversation that's going on in a Chinese context. It's taking place in China, in Chinese. And we bring it out of that context. We translate it. We contextualize it. We make it available for an audience first in English and then later in up to 30 different languages. And we've gotten very, very good at sort of three processes behind this. We're very good at translation, not machine translation, actual human beings trying to translate something. We've gotten very good at what we call cultural bridging, trying to find someone who knows the audience, who knows the country a story is coming from, and can think about how you sort of bring those two together. How do I give you enough as an American about the story in China that you're going to be able to discover it, that you're going to be able to encounter it? And we're playing with different ways of dealing with discovery. And the reason for that is it turns out that most people don't wake up in the morning and say, I really want to know what's going on in China. And we actually have to find some way to get into the discovery cycle. How are people discovering media that's giving them this cognitive diversity, that's pushing them in some different sorts of ways? As we explore this question of discovery, I'm starting to spend a lot more time thinking about what, what I'm thinking of as, as mirrors. And for me, mirrors are technology tools that I can hold up and show myself my behavior, or I can hold up and show somebody else their behavior. So this is a great mirror. This is Fitbit. This is a cute little tool that you sort of wear on. Oh, I've got it. on my Oh, okay. I thought you were telling me that I should hurry up because you were showing me your watch. Um, but it's a little pedometer that I, I wear in my waist, and it's telling me that I have only 3,800 steps out of my 10,000 a day, which means that I'm walking back to MIT after this. But it's a really nice way to sort of have this mirror and say, what am I getting in my physical universe? Am I really giving myself the workout that I hope to be getting? And what I'm trying to do right now over at Center for Civic Media is build some cognitive Fitbits. I really want to build some tools that make it possible for individual consumers of news, and particularly for newsrooms as a whole, to sort of look at what they're getting, look at what they're sort of putting into their heads, and say, is this what I want? And I don't want to get quite this prescriptive. I don't want to sort of say, if you're not walking five miles a day, or if you're not reading 20% African news, there's a problem with what you're doing. I just want to make it visible in one fashion or another. So here's a version of this that, that one of my students, Nathan Matias, put together uh, along with Sarah Slavitz, who works at the lab. This is a tool that looks at who you pay attention to on Twitter. And it makes educated guesses about gender. So it looks at the 1,100 people I follow on Twitter, throws first names through a gender disambiguator, comes out at the end of it and says, Ethan, you're following 56% men. And that wouldn't be so embarrassing if I was following 56% men and 44% women, but I'm not. I'm following about 18% brands and bots. So actual women, people with first names that suggest that they are women, represents about 27% of my Twitter universe. 
Now, the tool doesn't go and sort of nag and say, you know, you're worse than average. I'm actually round about average in all of this. It simply tries to make this visible. And when I find myself adding people on Twitter, I have to say, I have a very high barrier right now to adding men to Twitter. My bar to following new interesting people, you know, it's a significantly lower if you're interesting in female and showing up rather than interesting in male, because there is an imbalance here that I am not completely comfortable with. And I'm trying to figure out how we build these tools for newsrooms and for individuals sort of across the board. I'm also trying to figure out how we build sort of recommendation tools. And, and this is a project we've been working on for a while called The Weekly Different. And The Weekly Different also looks over your shoulder on Twitter, says who you're paying attention to. And rather than saying, okay, you're following these three people, here are three people who are very similar to them, can we change that axis somewhat? Can we essentially say, hey, Ethan, you're following a lot of liberals from New England. Let's get you following some liberals from the Southeast. Let's get you following some libertarians from New England. Let's find some way of shifting this a little bit and start suggesting the very best content that shows up in the course of a month from someone who is somewhat different from you. The student who's working on this, Catherine D'Ignazio, is now sort of pushing it in a slightly different direction. She's doing a master's thesis that she's calling Terra Incognita. And Terra Incognita watches over your shoulder, looks at everything that you look on the web, classifies it in terms of geography, and gives you a map uh, in real time. This is where you've been paying attention to. This is what parts of the globe you paid attention to. And here are the parts that are terra incognita. You don't have much of a connection to. Can we introduce you to a story, a person, some sort of a connection that's going to start giving you some insights, some contact with someone coming from a different perspective of one fashion or another? There's a lot of stuff we're doing in this space. I can show you some live stuff that we're playing with if I can get on the network. But the whole idea behind this is I'm trying to sort of challenge this paradigm that the way we're building the internet is going to be about connecting us to the people that we already know. I really think that we've gone about as far as we can go down that paradigm. I think all of these services that are trying very, very hard to give us information and recommendations from our friends, from the same people over and over and over again, are sort of missing a much larger opportunity, which is this opportunity to try to help us figure out what don't we know, what aren't we paying attention to that might make our lives a little richer, a little more diverse, give us that sort of broader understanding, but that we can still find a way to connect to in one fashion or another. So my, my point in all of this is that we really are very connected. We really are at a moment in time where our stuff, our people, you know, our problems are sort of global in scale, but a lot of the time we're a whole lot less connected than we really hope. And that looking at what these systems actually do, looking at what behaviors really happen on top of them, is a first step to trying to figure out how you would rewire your way towards an internet that actually sort of prepares you to live in this highly globally connected world. So that's what I've been working on lately. Very, very happy to talk more about it. Thank you very much. take the opportunity to ask a first question or two, but then we'll, we'll open it up. Um, one thing you said struck me as um, almost naive, and that is that we can change this if we want to. Yep. Uh, because the people who do not want it to change are Google and Facebook yep. and gigantically powerful institutions now that have been created in the last 20 years since yep. the World Wide Web. Do you really think really at the level of policy and government, mm -hmm. 
that it is possible, for instance, in the area of privacy, to make changes uh, in the world we live in with the power structure we're in now. So, so let's look at the possibility of informed naivete. Okay. So here's the informed. I, I like the concept. Here, 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 here's the informed part of it. Um, when the Google guys were in a garage, you know, fine-tuning back rub, the little algorithm that, that started building uh, PageRank, which started building Google, um, I was running one of these big web companies. At that point, the <coughs> largest in the world. That was less than 20 years ago. Um, these guys are all of my generation. This stuff was all built in the last 20 years. And we talk about it as if icebergs suddenly like you know descended from the globe and, and, and suddenly ended up you know filling Silicon Valley. There's some giant unnatural force that none of us can deal with. These things are incredibly recent and they were built by sort of small numbers of people in the extremely recent past and a lot of them are very, very fragile. Uh, Yahoo is not the giant that it used to be, and we would have been talking about them in very serious, dire terms ten years ago. We would have been talking about MySpace in very dire, serious terms ten years ago. It does not seem implausible to me that someone could show up and say, I'm going to build a company based on the next paradigm. And the next paradigm isn't about reconnecting you with the people that you know and have known since high school. The next paradigm is about giving you information that you never otherwise would have found and broadening your view of the world. And that seems to me to be not just realistic to build, but realistic to build and make a bunch of money in the process of doing. So, so that's where that optimism comes from. And, and, and a lot of the critique I've gotten from this book basically comes along the lines of people saying, you know, why are you looking to Google to be your savior? And, and just to clarify, I'm not looking to Google to be my savior. I'm trying to do Google the favor of saying, I believe they could see the problem that I'm pointing to. And if they wanted to take that problem seriously, they could do something with that problem. Now, you asked a much broader question as well, which is, can we get a handle around these questions of privacy and security? Can we somehow put the cat back in the bag of systemic spying on the American people and global people. And that's one where I have to say that I'm a lot less optimistic on all of it. But if I want to be an optimist on it, I would argue that this is a wonderful moment in time for someone to stand up and say, I'm going to build something that makes it really, really hard for the NSA to look over my shoulder at what I'm doing sending mail. And we know that some of this is technically possible. One of the interesting things that's come out of the Snowden revelations is that the math wasn't wrong. It turns out that the sort of core protocols that people have been using to protect themselves were right. That essentially what's happened is that the NSA has been running sort of a Chinese-style spying ring attacking individual computers to try to compromise them in every way possible. And right now, because security is sort of all on your hand as a, a single individual, it's very, very hard for anyone other than the most technical to be very, very secure. But this is a moment where if you had companies essentially stand up and say, no, there's an alternative to this, you could build companies that were doing end-to-end -end <coughs> encryption and were actually trying to take privacy very seriously. None of this stuff is inevitable. Technology always has politics. It always has built-in assumptions. But there's nothing that stops us from having very big, deep conversations about what those politics should be 
and then trying to think if we can bring those politics into code and actually have them succeed in the market. And I'm a fairly big believer that, that that's possible in at least well, one or two of these axes. I hope you're right. I hope you're right. Let me open this to students uh, first. Yes. Hi. Um, so I feel like I'm like one of the younger people in the room, so I might have like a little bit of a more optimistic perspective. But um, my question is, number one, I think what you're saying is that a lot of what digital tools are doing is it just reinforcing norms that we already carry. And I see this in a lot of ways. Like Brenda Lee's wrote an article on Medium about how it reinforces, you know, kind of gender dynamics. Like she looked at OK Cupid. Um, but I always think that like digital tools are only one part of what will solve this kind of uh, echo chamber, this you know, kind of people to self-segregate. Um, and uh, what I see as kind of the the main driving force is actually the younger generation and are kind of seeking novelty. Um, I see it in terms of, you know, uh, I went to Tufts, most of my peers went to study abroad. Um, they made international connections. Um, there's also websites like Couchsurfing, which <coughs> is based on the concept of you meet someone like all across the world um, and you make real connections with them. And then I end up face, you know, Facebook friending those people. And so now I know what's going on in Brazil. I know what's going on in uh, Europe. And, and so I think um, kind of to summarize, like, Digital tools, yeah, we can make them as, as you know, open-minded as, as possible, but in terms of the actual transformation, I think it's yep. going to come from people. And I think you know, it's going to be based on uh, the younger generation really traveling, seeing the world, and also it's going to be with art, because I think if you look at cognitive you know, um, kind of opening up of ideas and embracing them, I would say the friends that I have who are artists are the ones who are actively seeking that and you know, I have uh, you know, musician friends in Romania who are connected with friends in Canada. And the reason they're friends is actually they heard this other person's music record, decided they wanted to keep yep. working together. Some people start record labels, and then that becomes an actual community that is ever growing. So I think looking at community building based on art and also kind of yep. this global generation. I mean, I okay. was born in Korea, and now I live in the States. I think that's going to be yep. kind of the so, so let me let me react to a, a couple of different pieces of, of that because I, I I think you're right on um, and and I think there's a couple of things that that you said that are important to sort of pull out of that. Um, I don't want to suggest that the digital is going to replace the importance of the physical in terms of making connections, and I think there's a lot to be said for the notion that digital tools are making it easier to make those sort of face-to-face -face connections. But I would point out that the vast majority of the world, unfortunately, doesn't get to study abroad, doesn't have that flexibility of travel. And so the digital network piece of it still ends up being fairly important. Where I think you're saying something very, very helpful is that sense in that by virtue of making friends with someone with Brazil, you are now a better consumer for news coming out of Brazil. And this is something that we end up referring to as the caring problem. I can take all of Global Voices, I can give you all the news that I have coming out of Cambodia, but if you don't know anything about Cambodia, you don't know anybody from Cambodia, you probably have no interest in Cambodia. And it's very, very hard for you to actually pay attention at that point. Uh, I got this from my boss, Joey Ito, over at the Media Lab, um, who sort of approached me and said, Ethan, you do a lot of work in Africa. I'm starting to work in Africa. I'm going to an ICANN meeting in South Africa. Help me find Africans online. I was like, well, that's easy. You know, here's my 50 favorite people that I follow. And he came back to me sort of a week later and said, 
I can't read this. Like, I, I, I have no connection to this people. I, I want to care. I want to be paying attention to this. And, and it's just not, not working for me. And the answer was he needed some sort of human connection to get him engaged with the news, engaged with the events going on. The other thing that I want to grab out of that, which I think is absolutely right on, is that I don't think news is usually the first way through the door for someone to connect to another culture. And I actually think art is usually a much better way to, to, to go there. Um, you know, I've had the fun sort of this summer and this fall of, of going out and talking about this book. And the question that I get every time I give the talk is, okay, I buy it. I need more cognitive diversity. I should be paying more attention to the world. What do I do? Um, and, and the answer to that is, is don't try to pay attention to the world. Pick a country, pick a place that you already have some love for and sort of build from that. But more than that, pick a vector. Pick a way to think about the world. Pick something that you care about and sort of go from there. Uh, so my example on this is always Botswana and death metal. Uh, I, I think you can definitely sort of listen your way around the world. Uh, I listen to a lot of very loud, very angry music. It's one of the reasons I stay a, a calm and nice and even-killed person. Uh, and, and so at a certain point, I started looking at uh, the heavy metal scene around the world. And it turns out that some of the best metal that I'm listening to at the moment is a band called Rust out of Botswana. Uh, and so I'm learning an enormous amount about sort of the Botswanan death metal scene and sort of moving from here to sort of make connections around this. And every time I say this in the talk, people start sending me uh, metal music from very strange parts of the world. So it may not be that Botswanan death metal is your thing, but whether it's food, whether it's literature, whether it's something, that's often a very, very good vector to sort of get over the barrier of the caring problem and sort of go what, from What there. is the significance of the word death in that kind of music? We can, we can get into the distinctions between death metal and black metal, but that would take the rest of the time we have in this <laughs> we'll room, and, and, and we, should, we should do that in a different Other context. Other students Alex. who have uh, questions? Other students? Okay. Ethan, I think you're right on about Picasso. He once said that all artists are thieves. Yep. Um, but don't you think that the internet itself has potential to lower the barriers to knowing the other as um, AI gets smarter and smarter, there's the possibility of real-time language and text translation so that at least you can understand the other person talking in their own voices? So, um, so chapter of the book is about translation. Um, and it follows the same model as the rest of the book, which you may have picked up at the moment now, which is it moves from uh, the incredible optimism about tech to the crushing disappointment of what the current state of the art is to kind of looking somewhat hopefully to the future. So, so here's that in, in a really quick nutshell, right? When we started looking at, at machine translation, you had folks at Dartmouth College saying, we should be able to knock this out in one good long summer. And predicting that they would be able to go from Russian to English with about a thousand grammatical rules and a dictionary of about 5,000 words. Uh, and they struck out pretty darn fast, even trying to translate scientific journals. There was what people called the AI winter for about 20 years, where no one even sort of looked at the problem because it looked so hard. And now we've come back with this idea of machine translation based on <coughs> massive sets of data. Let's just find a really huge set of data where people are speaking French, people are speaking English. So let's take the Canadian parliamentary proceedings, we'll feed it into a computer, and as long as what we're trying to sound, uh, translate sounds a lot like parliamentary French in Canada, we should get a pretty good rendering of it. And this is what's now state of the art. There is really nothing better out there than Google Translate. Uh, 
And I don't know if you've used Google Translate much to try to read, say, a Chinese newspaper, but you probably haven't because it's pretty damned painful. And the notion that you are actually going to read anything for pleasure in translation outside of the Romance languages, it's just not going to happen. We haven't hit that bar yet. So what's the good news in this? The good news in this is that the other thing the net does really well, other than acquiring giant data sets, is making it possible for a whole lot of people to get together and work on a project. And so there's a lot going on in human computer-aided translation that's worth paying attention to. And so a lot of this comes out of the entertainment world. When Game of Thrones goes back on HBO, every one of those episodes will be pirated, shipped over to China, transcribed into English, and translated into Chinese within 12 hours. You will be able to get any of those shows subtitled in Chinese within 12 hours at an extremely high level of quality. Because there are groups of hundreds of people dedicated to that problem of trying to figure out how to translate it. There's a group called Ian, the Chinese word for, for translate, that has 40,000 translators who work on the New York Times, they work in The Economist, they work on Read Write Web, they work on a whole bevy of articles and sort of put them out there. One of the things that I'm really worried about is that so far that goes one way. I do not see a community coming in the other direction. I do not know of a giant distributed community trying to translate from Chinese into English. I know of three guys who have a little firm called Tea Leaf Nation who are trying very, very hard to do it, but there's a big difference between three and 40,000. So I'm an optimist in some senses. I am an optimist that if we can get people excited about the challenge, there's a lot to do by bringing human beings together. Where I'm a pessimist is looking at these things that we've been sort of promised that they'll solve the problem just in another year or two. Most of those promises that we're going to be there in another year or two, we've been a year or two away for 20 years now. Uh, and I think machine translation probably fits in that camp for a lot of these languages. But I think massive human parallel translation is going to get us a lot closer. Questions? Following up on uh, Alex's uh, question on how do you get your arms around some of these problems, how do you tackle them in a world where there are increasing signs of consolidation on the internet, where there's all sorts of possibilities for gatekeeping, where we're talking about net neutrality and open internets, you talk a lot about internal fixes and, and some really interesting kinds of tools. What's the role of public policy in that? Yeah. So the problem in many ways is that the role of public policy thus far has been to just stay completely away from it. Uh, and if you talk to most net people, they'll sort of say, and that, that's just fine. You know, let, let's, let's hang out over there. Let, let's not have any intrusion into the space. Um, while that may have served us really well for about 20 years of a commercially controlled internet, we're starting to find ourselves in real problems. And net neutrality is sort of what happens when people wake up and say, a purely commercially driven internet has some real shortcomings. It has some real problems that we'd probably like regulators to sort of step in and help us with. Um, I am hoping that both around net neutrality and around some of these privacy and security issues, we might start seeing consumer demand for transparency policy intervention within the space. But I don't think we're going to see it just coming from the corporations. I think the corporations thus far have gotten very, very good at playing the card of essentially saying, this is all too complicated, you're just going to screw it up if you get into it. 
there is a sense in which most policymakers who've tried to regulate internet spaces are usually about seven years behind the times. And usually whatever you sort of see coming up in a policy circle is going after a problem that, you know, had sort of taken care of itself or is not quite as acute as it was. Spam is a great example of this. While the policymakers were trying to figure out how to come up with a can spam act, uh, most mail server operators pretty much obviated spam. I mean, I don't know about you, I don't really get spam anymore. And on many of the major mail servers, it's, it's, you're going to go a long time before you get it. And it looked like it was going to cripple the internet for a while. What we really need now is a consumer movement. We really need consumers to say, we want and need these things. We want and need a neutral internet. We want and need an internet that is resistant to monitoring by governments. We want and need the companies that we use and rely on to be transparent with us about who can look at our mail and what circumstances and what context <laughs> it will come in. And if we don't get that sort of consumer movement, we're going to get what we deserve. We're going to get a commercially driven net that tries to protect the commercial interest but doesn't necessarily protect the citizenship interest. Uh, and again, I, I would point over to Rebecca McKinnon's work, which is, is far more on point on this stuff than, than mine is. She's really going after this question of how do you hold a company responsible uh, around freedom of speech, which is sort of the issue that she cares most about. And she's doing work now at Penn's Annenberg Center looking at how you rank companies in terms of how they protect your speech. We're going to need someone else to do very similar work about how you protect your privacy and protect your security. For me, the question is, how do you protect your diversity? How do you protect that ability to sort of look in a number of different directions? But again, we're not going to get it unless people are asking for it. Um, and I don't expect to be able to sort of go to Congress and, and ask for the Cognitive Diversity Bill, um, in part because Congress doesn't appear to pass legislation anymore, <laughs> and in part because that's a really silly way to sort of approach the problem. What I would actually rather do on my work is try to inspire a small group of people both to sort of build the tools and adopt the tools and sort of push them forward. And that's really where I'm trying to go in my theory of change on this. But I think around things like security and around privacy, it's going to require a much broader, a much broader project. Yes. My question was actually very related to the previous one. So I think I'm going to spin it a little bit and ask, what's the role of non-technical people in this conversation? I feel like there's such a huge information gap uh, I'm taking Nico Mele's class and I've been following this on the peripheries. I feel like at least I have some sort of understanding of the issues you're yep. touching, uh, but I still feel like I'm just barely scraping the surface and I'm not a tech, I'm not a yep. software engineer. What's the role of people like me who are yep. really interested and curious and also a little scared about the potential of Google becoming evil? Yep. Um, so what is my role? So in the work that I'm doing, I'm hugely dependent on non-technical people to do the bridging work that I'm talking about. So when I'm talking about the Ron Burt paper and I'm talking about this question of those creative people at those structural holes, to get the sort of system that I'm looking for, I need people who are brokers between cultures. And that's a very non-technical task. That's really a matter of being someone who has a foot virtually in two different worlds. So that might be someone who is living in a country other than the country they were born in, someone who's studying abroad, someone who's working in a multicultural environment, someone like me who's done a lot of work in West Africa, trying to figure out how to take on that challenge of translating between one culture and another, doing that sort of cultural translation. And one of the things that I do in the book is, is actually talk a lot 
about how that cultural bridging takes place and, and almost exclusively in non-technical ways. And where I've been trying to go sort of technically with it is to sort of say, can we start identifying those people in social networks? Can we look for the person who's the bridge so that I can sort of say, hey, if you want to pay attention to Brazil on Twitter, here is the person who serves as a really good translator between what's going on on the Brazilian internet and what's going on in the English language internet. But what I need from the non-technical people is that work of essentially saying, what are the communities that you connect? How do you explain those communities to one another? And how do you sort of take what's really important to one of those communities and make it clear to another one of those communities? When I talk about this China problem, you know, the problem has a lot to do with Americans not paying attention to China. It also has a lot to do with people in China not yet sort of knowing how to have that conversation and sort of say, hey, guys, your model of who we are, what we think about, how we make decisions, a little out of date. Let me update you. Let me help you out. So I don't know if that has any resonance for you, but that's very much sort of the space that, that I'm in. And the work that we've been doing with Global Voices is wholly non-technical work. It's very much that work of building media and using media to, to, to build interpersonal relationship, and that's really where that, that work's been going. Um, I'm wondering what the role of the professional media is or should be in this conversation, and, and what does that mean for kind of the current status of trying, of the media industry trying to find new business models? The, the, um, the inevitable business model question is one that I, that I try very hard to duck because uh, I sort of feel like if all the other people who've sat in the seat here uh, don't have a good answer to it, it's very unlikely that I'm going to have it. Um, where I've been trying to go on the professional journalism side of this um, has maybe sort of three parts to it. The first is that while I see the shrinkage of foreign correspondence as really problematic, while I see the limited ability to sort of go out and bring those stories home, I do think one interesting way forward is to sort of say, how do we replace the foreign correspondent with the local correspondent? So this is work that we've been trying to do at Global Voices for a very, very long time, essentially saying when you are forced to close your foreign bureaus because so many of these papers are doing it, rather than backing off from international news entirely, can you find someone who is a bridge figure, who knows enough about an American audience, even about a Boston audience, to be able to explain Kenyan politics in Boston terms? Can you start leaning on that person as part of your staff? Why does it have to be the American based in Nairobi acting as the foreign correspondent, particularly once we've ended up in this sort of parachute journalism model where people are coming in for weeks at a time? In many cases, we might actually benefit from trying to figure out how we build truly international networks of people who are sort of helping us out to try to go and get those stories. So that's the first thing that I've been pushing. The second thing that I've been pushing is trying to help papers become much more aware, and by papers I really mean all media outlets, of, of what they're doing well and what they're not doing well. And in some cases, this just starts with mapping it. We have a project we've been doing with the Boston Globe where we take every story the Boston Globe publishes, we put it up on a map. Well, it's not very interesting. It turns out that the Boston Globe reports on Boston. That's a good way of testing that your tool works. But then if you go a step further and you sort of say, how many stories per capita are you getting? You end up with a really interesting distribution. Boston itself as the city gets a whole lot of stories per capita. 
the western suburbs get a whole lot of stories per capita. You get out to Lincoln, you get out on some of those, those communities out on Route 2, they do fine as far as stories per capita. You get very few stories per capita in Roxbury, in Dorchester, you get very few in Saugus and Lynn and Malden. Whether it's poor and white or poor and black, those are areas where you don't get a whole lot of coverage. And when you do get coverage, because one of the other things our map does is show you the words associated with that in the coverage, you start getting really interesting patterns. When we talk about Mattapan, we tend to talk about shootings. It's one of the words that comes up again and again and again. There's a tragic irony. We basically report on basketball and murder in Mattapan. And so shooting comes up in both of those stories. So it climbs to the, the, the top of our, of our word clouds. And so holding that up as a mirror to sort of say... What are we doing well locally? What are we doing well globally? That's a, a, another piece of it. The third piece of it that I'll put up perhaps most controversially, and I think I managed to piss off a ton of people at Neiman when I stood up and gave this talk for their 75th anniversary, is that I think that we are making a mistake in not talking enough about how we link the two bottom lines of a news organization that we are really obsessed right now with the fiscal bottom line for really good reasons. People are trying very, very hard to keep the doors open, but we may be losing track of the civic bottom line. We may be losing track of, is news helping us be better, more participatory, more engaged, more effective citizens? And it's my argument, totally unsupported by any facts, but my argument that if we start looking at this question of how news makes people civically effective, how it lets people work for change in their communities or work for change globally, that you're going to have people starting to say, this is something essential and I need to pay for it or I need to find a way to support it. I actually think what's most broken about news right now is this paradigm from the progressive era of the informed citizen where we sort of assume that our job is we're going to inform people and they'll vote every two or four years and that's how they're going to be effective and make change. I think we've moved to a very different expectation of citizenship. I think we're now looking at citizens as monitors, we're looking at citizens as sort of sources of news and information, and I don't feel like the newsroom is caught up. And I actually think this is one of the places that if we start getting it right, we may actually start getting the money right. Um, but, you know, no, I don't have a business model. Uh, I, I, am, I am no better than... Uh, several other people who have sat in the seat and told you more or less that. We're at the end of our time, but I want to tell you before we close why I think uh, Ethan Zuckerman is such a very, very valuable human being in our world. There are, are a lot of people like Ethan who are very, very smart and who have a great deal of knowledge about the digital world and all, in, in the most sophisticated kind of way. But there are not a lot of people in that world who think in terms of values. That is my prejudice, perhaps, but that's my sense. Ethan never doesn't think in terms of values. And I think that is something that is, if anything is going to save us from ourselves, it will be thinking like that. So thank you very much, Ethan. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Before everybody disband, I would love to ask you one quick question. Yep. And the quick question is, you've got a lot of smart uh, young people in here. You've had an unbelievable career. My question is, what was a seminal decision that you made or a piece of advice you would give young people who may not go into your area where you say, made all the difference. Clearly you're not wearing shorts, you still have the long hair. Uh, <laughs> uh, what's the advice? Um, keep changing careers. 
um, every moment you think you figured something out is a really good time to quit a job. Um, had you asked me at 26 what I would be doing at 40, uh, there is not a prayer that I would have come up with this. And what's happened for me is every four or five years, I've gotten bored with what I was doing. I've looked for that next really interesting challenge and jumped to it. And over time, that starts accumulating into a really interesting set of competencies and tendencies. I actually think, by the way, that this is the best advice that I've been hearing for journalists these days. I'm not a big fan of urging young people to go to J school. I am a big fan of urging people to go get a degree in economics or to do work in the IT sector or to do something really well and really passionately for a few years and then find a way to come write about it with that really informed basis on it. I think that life of having five or ten careers, which I think is going to be commonplace for some of our, our younger students in here, I really think it's an incredible gift and I think it's going to be wonderful for people who live that way. Ethan, thanks. Thank you very much.